It's my privilege to welcome you to the second presentation of the 48th edition of the Barton Clinton Gordy Lecture Series. For those of you who have not been with us before or might be new to the church, uh, let me give you a couple of brief facts about the series. Three great families and individuals endowed funds or left funds for an endowment so this series could continue forever. Dr. L.S. Barton, Dr. Fred S. Clinton, and Iva and Boney Gordy. They had a compassion and a caring for this church, and they left money so that this series can go on forever and ever. I'm told some of you before that Bona Gordy was my eighth grade algebra teacher. I'm not sure how much caring and compassion Bona and I shared during that year, but later on she was a resident at the Methodist Manor where my mother was, and we became quite good friends. So. You know, nothing like this just happens overnight. It takes some people to make this happen, and the committee makes this happen with some help from other people. So I'd like to introduce to you the Gordy, uh, the Barton Clinton Gordy Lecture Series Committee. My wife, Marilyn. Marilyn, would you stand, please? Jerry and Nancy Hudson. Where are the Hudsons? Right here. And Pam and Terry Carter. Are you all back here in the back? Good. And we're led by our senior minister, Dr. Muzan Biggs. As you know, we couldn't do this without his help. We bring people to him, and then he vets those people, and then he brings people to us, and we vet those people. He almost always wins in those cases because he brings better people than we do. But year after year, we get a scholar or a pastor or an academician or a rabbi or someone that brings another dimension to this. So we're forever grateful to Dr. Biggs for that. So let's give him a big hand, too. At this point, I was going to tell you what a dimension the choir brought to this uh, uh, affair. Every year, they're, they're here every for every session. They faithfully come, uh, never gripe about it, and Joel and Susan do a great job with them. So one more time for the choir. And Joel fooled us this year. We sang one song we knew before. I think Joel has some friends in the alien world that brings these to us every once in a while. And now for our speaker this evening, the Rabbi Sheldon Zimmerman. Rabbi Zimmerman is the rabbi of the Jewish Center of the Hamptons in East Hampton, as Muzan has told you. That's a tough gig. Rabbi Zimmerman has served as the rabbi of Central Synagogue in New York City and also served the largest Jewish congregation in North America in the temple in Dallas. He's also served for five years as president of the Hebrew Union College, Jewish Institute of Religion, and headed all four of its campuses, Cincinnati, New York, Los Angeles, and Jerusalem. That was founded in 1875 and is the oldest rabbinical seminary in the United States. Rabbi Zimmerman also headed Birthright Israel. I won't attempt to explain that what that is to you. He can do that. He also served as vice president of the Jewish Renaissance and Renewal of the United Jewish Communities. He's been a visiting professor at Fordham University and at Perkins School of Theology in Dallas. He's also an adjunct faculty at Hebrew Union College. He's a, an accomplished author and published a number of articles and a number of books. He also has done something I found interesting. He's worked with extensively with recovering alcoholics. I don't mean that I, you know, but he created the first non-sectarian Alcoholics Anonymous group to ever meet in a synagogue. Now, every year I've tried to bring you something of a different nature about our speaker. 
I've tried to bring you something of a personal side that wasn't on this printed page or you didn't hear some, somewhere else. So I'll attempt to do that for a couple of brief seconds here. Rabbi Zimmerman is married. He has four children. He told me at lunch today that he has left a child in every city that he has served in. It took me clear to my dessert till I tried to realize what it was he had said to me. And I think what he meant was that he has children now that work or live in those cities. Hopefully that's what he meant by that. He's an avid walker. He's an avid reader. He also said he used to be an avid jogger, but he had a hip replacement, and that since has ceased. He can tell you some good stories, about good Jewish stories about hip replacements. I also asked him what he did for a hobby, and he said, well, Philly said, uh, what I want to do is, since the Hamptons face the Atlantic Ocean, is he said, I want to begin fishing again. Well, you, you can imagine what this did to me. I want him to fish again, too, and I want him to buy a boat to fish in. So I, I, I realized then he was the right kind of guy for us. So tonight's going to be your privilege to hear Rabbi Sheldon Zimmerman present, Am I My Brother's Keeper? Beautiful. Since I have this microphone, I don't know what this is for unless uh, Muzan wants to use it. Um, and I gave it to him, so in case anything you want to say, come in at any time. There you go. Okay. I'm watching. I'm watching. Uh, what an extraordinary choir you have. Uh, beautiful, sweet song, elegant and eloquent, uh, taking us heavenward. Um, I, all I know is that I once had a teacher uh, in uh, the seminary who said, Zimmerman, remember, you're not a canary. I said, what does that mean? He said, if you could sing, really, you would never have to preach again. <laughs> but uh, we heard and uh, experienced that heavenly flow of music and uh, what an extraordinary choir you have here, so ably led and directed, um, and, and really touched me deeply uh, today. It seems I've been here all day today. It's <laughs> you know, 8.30 in the morning, then the senior high group who were terrific. I must tell you, you are very blessed by having one of the most exciting youth, youth people around. Uh, the senior high, they were questioning, uh, they were provoking, they were searching, and they put up with me. Uh, and it was just an extraordinary, extraordinary I must tell you experience this morning as we try to do part of what I'm going to try to do tonight with you. And I felt so good about this morning. I said, I don't even know if I want to try it again. But it was that, it was that good. And then, of course, to be at your 11 o'clock service um, with the television cameras in the back, uh, two clocks. 
They promised me there would not be another clock here tonight. Will you look back there, please? That was... Thank you. Thank you. spoke to one of my children today and I said, you know, they had two clocks on me. Uh, and they said, Dad, remember that story you once told? Let me just say it quickly. A, a, a very good Christian friend of one of the members of the congregation came in uh, to see the congregation in Dallas. And the member of the congregation was describing the beauty of the sanctuary and the, where the organ played and what everything meant, the Torah scrolls, everything else. And uh, this is, I mean, it's a true story, by the way. I want to know it's a true story. And they saw, he, he saw me taking off my watch at the beginning of the sermon. And he says, what does that mean? And he, to which the member responded, it means nothing at all. <laughs> So you can just imagine what working with these clocks have done to me today. I may never recover. I want to try to alert you tonight to a way of reading text and reading biblical text, both Jewish scripture and Christian scripture, to understand that those texts have an internal dialogue with us and that they were written, some people believe, people wrote them, some people they were believe they were written under divine inspiration, some believe the parts of it were given by God directly to Moses on Sinai's top, on the peak. But what we know is that whatever it was, it was written with meaning. And there are many people in literature today who talk about deconstruction. You really cannot know what the meaning was. But we can know that they were written with meaning. And if they're written with meaning, maybe we can figure out the clues the text give us. On the question that I want to share with you tonight, I believe that there is meaning in the text that can be deciphered by clues the texts themselves give. By words, by phrases, by places, that you and I can actually discover something new about what's going on. And that's why I call it a new look at Genesis. There's something different. And I've been trying to put it together in different ways. I wrote an article on Where Are Your Brothers? Because I finally came to a place for myself. You don't have to agree with me where I came to believe that the first question a human being asks of God at the very beginning of Genesis, and we'll look at that question in a moment, that that question is answered not there, but in building a narrative response through the whole book till it's answered at the very end. And when it is answered, the book of Genesis can come to an end and the story of a people can begin. Because the book of Genesis is about persons, not about a people. It's about individuals, not about a community. It's about 
families. It's like an ongoing guiding light. You know, it's all my children writ large. And the question is how to let the text speak to you. I very much believe that texts speak. I take Dr. Martin Buber's position very seriously, that we enter a dialogue with the text, and the text does speak to us. And we can hear it and understand it, and the text becomes a prism through which you and I can understand ourselves, our lives, and how we are to approach the world. Now, you do a great deal of that through the personness of Jesus. In Jewish scripture, in the Hebrew Bible, it's done through those early patriarchal, matriarchal families, and it is done through the stories of their lives and what happens to them. So let's start. Let's first of all, if you have a Bible there, just take it out for a second, just to refresh your mind, just to this first question, I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry, you already know what's going on. Now, the man knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gained a male child with the help of the Lord. By the way, I'm using a Jewish translation. I don't know which translation... Oh, you, you, you like the New Revised Standard Version? Well, what can I do about that? <laughs> oh, good, I'm glad, I'm glad. My, first of all, my problem with all translations is they're all interpretive. There's no such thing as a clear translation. And you see it in, in Hebrew texts. If you can understand the Hebrew text, sometimes it's very difficult to understand. So it's an ongoing process. So I'm going to read from this, but the, the newly revised uh, standard version is also fine. But we're reading from Genesis 4. And just take a look at those verses, because that'll just set the stage of this entire conversation this evening. So... Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gained a male child with the help of God. I have problems with God's involvement in all of this sexual activity, but that's for another conversation. <laughs> she then bore his brother Abel, and Abel became a keeper of sheep, and Cain became a tiller of the soil. Sounds like some of the battles of the West, first between the farmers and the people with flocks, before you got into the cattle issue as well. And Abel, and so Cain brought an offering to God from the fruit of the soil, and Abel, for his part, brought the choicest of the firstlings of the flock. God, for whatever reason, paid no heed to Abel and his offering, but to Cain and his offering, he paid he paid to Abel, but not at all to Cain. Cain was much distressed, and his face fell. And God said to him, Why are you distressed? Why is your face fallen? Surely if you do right, there is uplift. If you don't do right, sin couches at the door. 
the story is very unclear. What did Cain do here that was wrong? What did Abel do that was right? Is this an earlier story being modified? We don't know. And then the strangest thing, it says Cain said to his brother Abel, and the text stops. We have no idea what they were talking about. Nothing. There's nothing in the text. text is absolutely blank. We don't know what they were talking about. And when they were in the field, Cain set upon his brother Abel and killed him. And God said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? And Cain said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Now, so where's the answer? Not there. There's no answer. We have, we have a punishment. But we have no answer. And so the text starts off with this extraordinary question, am I my brother's keeper? It applies to sisters as well, but here they're doing it through the men. And this is even that's a strange translation because the word for I could be a couple of things and the word they use there is Anochi, which is from the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God. That's Anochi. So some people suggest he was saying with a Jewish intonation, which is, am I my brother's keeper? Aren't you? Okay. So it's not clear because Hebrew has, at this stage of its development, no punctuation as to the inflection that's being used there. But the question is, am I my brother's keeper? I want to suggest to you tonight that the entire book of Genesis is an answer to the question. And Genesis cannot end until the question is answered in the course of the narrative itself. And it will be answered. I believe that. So let's take a brief look at some brothers. Let's do some brothers. Give me some brothers. Abraham. Let's do with Abraham's sons first, okay? Give me the two brothers. Uh, Ishmael and Isaac, okay? One set of brothers. Give me the next set of brothers that become important in the book. Jake, quiet. Jacob and Esau. That's good, good. He's, he gets a lot of gold stars, doesn't he? Do you see that? Jacob and Esau, good. Third set of brothers. Joseph and his brothers. Okay. Those are three definitive sets of brothers. Now, there are a couple other places in the text where they talk about brothers. The Hebrew word for brothers or kinsmen is achim. You know, in that wonderful verse from Psalms, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. Again, that's achim. The word is brothers. But I want to start with Isaac and Ishmael, and I'm going to give you just little tidbits of it along the way. If you really want to someday study it, either I'll come back and just sit in a corner in Tulsa and we'll study about all this stuff, or I'm not inviting myself back. Don't worry, I'm not inviting myself back. But, uh, but I want to give you an overview and I want you to start listening to the text speak to you. 
and especially what happens by the end of the book itself. Let's take a look at Isaac and Ishmael. You know the story. Sarah's barren. They always blame the woman. Text is definitively not egalitarian, and somehow the woman always gets blamed when there are no children. And Sarah's blamed. Abraham loves her, but Sarah's blamed. So what does Sarah do? And it was common in those days, because it was a polygamous society, and the early ancestors were in fact polygamous with more than one wife. And it's interesting, the part of Christian influence on Judaism was a movement towards monogamy. It's fascinating. Fascinating very early because Jews who lived in Arab lands still practiced more than one wife for many years. But Jews who lived in Christian countries from very early on shifted to total monogamy. So it's an interesting influence back and forth. We talk sometimes only one way. It goes both ways in everything we do. So here you have a case where Sarah says, look, I have this wonderful, wonderful woman, Hagar. And I'm giving her to you as concubine. That means second wife. Concubines were wives. They weren't in a harem. They were wives. It's a second level wife, but it's a wife with inheritance rights and other things as well because of her position in the family. So Abraham, of course, you know, he didn't say anything negative about that. And he and Hagar spend some time together, and she becomes pregnant. And when she became pregnant, the text says, and you always got to worry about who's writing the text. Was it someone who favored Sarah, who wanted to play up Sarah, or was it some other way? But the text then continues and says, and Hagar somehow mocked out Sarah troubled Sarah. And Sarah just couldn't stand it anymore. She told Abraham, I want you to throw her out. Didn't do anything. But after Hagar had the child and called him Ishmael, God heard or will hear, Sarah couldn't take it anymore. She said, you've got to get rid of, got to get rid of her. And Abraham gives her some food and provisions, and God says, whatever Sarah says, do. God was a kind of marriage counselor of a certain type at that point. <laughs> whatever your wife says, do it, fine, don't argue, just do it. So he did it. And the story goes that she goes out. And I want to show you the word that we're going to play with in a few minutes. So we're going to go to the Abraham story, all right? The Abraham and Sarah story. And I want you to go to chapter 16. Chapter 16. 16 in Genesis, all right? Hagar is out. She is crying. She has a little child with her. And in verse 8, it says, The angel came to her and said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I'm running away from my mistress Sarai. 
And the angel of the Lord said to her, I want you to go back to your mistress, submit to her treatment, and in reward I will greatly increase your offspring, and they shall be too many to count. Then the angel said to her, Behold, you are with child, and you shall bear a son. You shall call him Ishmael. For God has heard, paid heed to your suffering. And then it talks about Ishmael for a moment. And then she called the Lord who spoke to her, You are Ailroi, by which he meant, Have I not gone on seeing after he saw me? But this is a God who saw her. Therefore the well was called Be'er Lachai Ro'i. And it tells you where that the air means a spring or well of the God who sees. Now, some of you have heard me say this already. I want you to be clear. I believe in what is called the Boing theory of biblical criticism. The Boing theory is you hear a word in one place, you hear a word or a similar word in another place, and you say, boing. <laughs> Remembering that most of the literature, they didn't have books. And most of the stories were read aloud and are written for hearing, not for seeing. And therefore, words are repeated in certain ways and we can understand certain things. The Erlachai Roi is very important. But we don't know why yet. But don't forget it. And the next time you hear it, it is your... What's your name, sir? Tom, it is your job to say, boing. Is that all right? <laughs> if, it, if it puts too much stress on you, I don't want to do that. <laughs> but if you hear that title again, I want you to say, boing. Okay? Let's, the story moves along. Sarah has a child, right? Call him Isaac. She gets blamed by for the name because Sarah supposedly laughed when in the story, the narrative, Abraham laughs first, but we'll put the non-egalitarianism of the text aside. Sarah's always getting blamed for things, and Abraham rarely is blamed for anything. The story continues. They have a son Isaac. She sees Ishmael and Isaac getting very close. A teenager, you know how teenagers love babies? How teenagers love little children? That's why they're such good babysitters. And Ishmael, who is then a teenager, loves his younger brother. She doesn't like that. And she once again says to Abraham, out. And this time, Hagar leaves with Ishmael. Then the story moves on. This time the story goes, Abraham is told to take his son up a mountain. We talked about this in the senior high program today. And they had a lot of good comments about parents, about brothers, about crazy old men taking their kids up mountains, all of these things. <laughs> that would concern them. We had a great conversation. Now, Abraham takes Isaac up the mountain. You know the story. What happens? I don't hear you. got to speak out loud. Look, the very worst, I'll tell you you're wrong. That's all. I'll tell you 
What's that? God provided something instead of the child, right? By the way, one of the things we studied with the high school group today, I told uh, your wonderful senior minister here that I was teaching Christianity a lot today, and I showed how the Isaac story was using some of the Christian narratives. You know? I mean, who was going up a mountain to be sacrificed? The son. What did he carry going up that mountaintop? The wood for the sacrifice. Doesn't that sound familiar? On what day did he go up the mountaintop? In this case, the third day. Now, I don't have to then tell you all the commonalities in the story. And I'm not saying one story. Is, I'm, not, I'm not using story in a negative sense. It's a narrative. I just want you to understand it's a holy narrative. It's a narrative. In any case, go up the mountaintop. He prepares to... Right? And what happens? What's that? Who said? God doesn't say a word. And this is what your kids pointed out today. God doesn't say... You know what, you, you know what your kids said today to me? Where's God? God's not in the story. An angel speaks, but God doesn't speak. And the absence of God is... I, will leave, I said, they said, so where is God? I said, ask your reverend here. Where is God? <laughs> It's not my topic. I'm talking about brothers. Don't ask me about where is God. So expect to hear from the high school seniors. It's not, it's not. Okay. But there's a problem in that story. Let's take a look at the story. Go to Genesis 22. There are a lot of problems in the story, but let's take a look at Genesis 22. All right. They're coming down from the mountain. Whoever, if it was, if it were two or was it one, we'll see in a minute. Look at verse, after Abraham is blessed, take a look at verse 19. Abraham then returned to his servants and they departed together for Beersheba and Abraham stayed in Beersheba. What's the problem? Where's Isaac? No Isaac. Isaac disappears from this story. And that led to all kinds of interpretive processes. Some saw Isaac as actually the angel stopped him too late. Abraham was stopped too late and Isaac died, they said, and then was later resurrected. And the Jews of the crusade periods in Europe. Believe that story. There's a whole book written by a late professor at the Jewish Theological Seminary called The Last Trial, which is about a belief in medieval Judaism that Isaac actually was sacrificed and then resurrected. Sounds like... You can use the word, it's okay. I know... <laughs> I know that... Uh, Muzan was very worried. God forbid we should. But as you heard today, it's fine. You can talk about it. There's no problem. Now, and there are people who believe that the narrative is interlinked and that Isaac became a Jesus figure for some medieval Jews. Okay, there's a whole story in there if you want in the book. And if you ask your wonderful minister, and you, or you can email me directly and I'll send you the name of the book. Now, Isaac is missing. Let's say you were Isaac, where would you go? 
Let's say you were still alive. Where would you go? Would you go home with a crazy old man? No way. I wouldn't. I wouldn't do it. Would you go to your mother? Did she know? Didn't she know? I didn't hear you. Well, we don't know. Well, we don't know. We don't know, but you're probably right. Or she didn't get involved in it in any way. And if I were Isaac, I wouldn't know. I would not know. Keep that in mind just for a second, and we're going to wind this up and go to the next set of brothers. So I don't know that to be the case. And in fact, what we do know is, where does Abraham go back to? What town? Beersheba or Beersheba. In Hebrew, it's Beersheba, Beersheba in English. All right? He goes back to Beersheba. Where's she living? Take a look at the next chapter. Look at chapter 23, just a few lines later. You know, chapters are also, by the way, arbitrary. If you look at a Torah scroll, it's just one ongoing story. That's where they get the whole Megillah from, that phrase, because scroll in Hebrew is a Megillah. And it's the whole story. So the story keeps on going, all right? What does it say? Where did she die? Because she dies right away. Immediately, she said, my God, what have you done? And there are all kinds of narratives, actual dramatic narratives of Sarah's grief when she learns about what Abraham did or was about to do. But where did she die? In Hebron, right? Also known as Kiriath Arba. And he wasn't there. Where was he? Beersheba. So chances are she threw him out. Or he was scared to go home. But one of the two. But when she died, he had to go to another place to bury her. That's why she's buried in Hebron. And that later will be the place that he acquires to bury the matriarchal, patriarchal families. So we know she probably didn't know, but we're not sure. So where's Isaac? And we're, the text is going to tell you. You ready? Okay, just stay. Not yet. Don't say anything yet. All right? So we're going to go on to Abraham, the rest of the story, which deals with Abraham, who it seems Isaac never spoke to his father again. There's no evidence in the biblical text that Isaac and Abraham ever spoke again after that day. No. But there's no evidence, which is interesting because he even arranges a marriage for Isaac. He sends his servant off, servant in, in this sense of the guy who was the CEO of Abraham's corporation to take care of this, Eliezer of Damascus. And here's where we see Isaac next, okay? So you have to take a look just a little bit further on in the text. This is when the servant brings the woman who's going to be Isaac's wife to him. You ready? Okay, now, are you with me? Chapter 24, verse 62. So here comes Rebecca on this caravan. There she's coming. 
Isaac had just come back from the vicinity of Be'er Lachai Ro'i. Got it. All right. Be'er Lachai Ro'i. So where do you think Isaac went? He went to his brother. And which brother did he go to? The cast out brother. That interesting. That's going to be the theme of Genesis. The cast out brother who takes care of the other brother. You're going to see it again and again and again. In Joseph and Judah, you've got two who were cast out. You're going to see it in a minute. They both were cast out. Because in Judah's case, his mother, who was less loved, and in Joseph's case, he was actually cast out. And how that became the ultimate answer. But first, Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac probably went and lived with Ishmael. The text goes on to say they both buried their father. And Isaac settled in Be'er Lachai Ro'i, right next to where his brother lived. Is there anybody has a boing story? Now, I don't want to say how many times you've read the story. I hope you've read it a number of times. I'm sure you've heard it preached a number of times. But our tendency is to read quickly and not to listen to the text. You cannot understand biblical text without sound. A lot of sound. Okay, so that's the story of Isaac and Ishmael. It's not a full story. They lived separately. He was his keeper to a point. They settled together. I'm sure he took care of them. But Isaac still ended up with the major inheritance and all the other stuff, so it's not exactly that way. But it's the cast-out brother who suffered, who was left without his father, that through the reconciliation of brothers, they came together to bury their dad. I won't ask if that's ever happened to anybody in this room. But at death, isn't there a lot of reconciliation sometimes? So I once said to a friend of mine that someday I'd like to write a book, Conversations I Overheard on the Way to the Cemetery. <laughs> Sometimes they ask the rabbi to drive with the family, and you're sitting in the front seat, and they're going on in the back seat, who was there, who wasn't there, and did you see what he did? Did you see what this one did, and all that stuff? I'm sure it's only a Jewish narrative. Could never happen anywhere else. Right? Far be it from me to suggest to whatever happened to you guys. All right. So the two are getting to see a kind of attempt to respond. Jacob Esau. What does Jacob do? He's first of all sells. He gets. He you know poor Esau. Esau is one of these guys, an NRA member. He's doing very well. He loves to hunt. He comes in. He's hungry. He's tired. He's the hunter. And there is Jacob, mama's boy, doing what? He's cooking in the kitchen. And he's making some lentil stew. Is that what they're giving tomorrow, the lentil stew, instead of chili or with chili? I just wanted to be, be careful, folks. Be careful. And here... He comes in, and he's exhausted, and Esau says, I could eat a horse. Jacob says, I'm, I'm saying that, I'm adding that to the story. I don't have a horse, but would you like this? But before you have this, sell me your birthright. 
the younger brother. Remember? Esau and he are born at the same time, but he's a minute or so behind. And of course, he didn't want to let Esau out in front, so he was holding on to his brother Esau's heel. So the birthright. Then, when it comes time for the blessing, what does he do? You know all these from Bible stories you did in Sunday school, right? What happens about the matter of the blessing? Rebecca, who had gotten an oracle, went and heard an older oracle that the older would serve the younger, feels she's got to help make it happen. And Jacob's her favorite anyways. There's no evidence that she gave a hoot about too much about Esau. Another case of a child who maybe didn't get enough love. All possibilities there, all possibilities. Have to let that story, you know, take its own form. So he gets dressed up in a kind of furry costume, a kind of worldwide wrestling wrestler type guy. <laughs> Jacob, who was supposed to be, you know, with smooth skin and not the type, not the hunter like his brother. And he gets the blessing. And a minute later, Esau comes in having brought venison for his father. And his father said, who are you? He said, I'm Esau. I'm back with the food and where's my blessing? He said, I just gave your blessing to your brother. He says, don't you have a blessing for me, my father? Do you hear that cry of Esau? Don't you have a blessing for me, my father? And he gives him a quasi-blessing. Another child. Loses his blessing, loses his birthright, and can't believe it. Then his, his mother says to his father, Rebecca says to Isaac, send him back. I want him to marry somebody from the old country, a good Italian, good Jewish, good something family, right? Back you go. I don't want him marrying the Canaanite ladies around here. He's going back. And Esau's furious. And he says just before he's sent back, you know, I'll wait till my father dies. I'm going to kill my brother. And Jacob flees. Now Jacob's coming back. After being away a number of years, he's coming back. And the question is, the two brothers are going to meet. Let's take a look at that meeting. Okay, it's still in Genesis. We're still in Genesis. All right, so let's go take a look at that meeting. Go to chapter 33. By the way, if any Bible classes, if you really want to study Genesis from this perspective, you'll have a lot of fun with it. I'm just giving you little tidbits, the flow of the story, rather, around, rather than keep you here all night uh, for the whole book. So look at chapter 33. Looking up, Jacob sees Esau coming, accompanied by 400 men. What's the assumption? He's going to kill him. Does the text say so? No. See how the text fools you there? There's no evidence that he's going to hurt his brother. It's been many years. He has flourished himself, Esau. He has land. He has money. I'm sure there are plenty of resentments still around. It's amazing how you and I maintain resentments. Once I had a therapist friend of mine. She said to me, 
You know something? You're still living with hurts of 40 years ago. I said, what do you mean 40 years ago? Still hurts me today. She said, give it up. Settle it straight and give it up. You know how many of us act out of those resentments? So I'm sure Esau had them. But there's no evidence. He had 400 men with him. He happened to be the sheep, the head of the clan. He was coming maybe with his retinue. There's no evidence he was going to hurt anybody. And so Jacob, seeing that, has to come up with a strategy. Not to approach his brother for reconciliation, but with a strategy. Okay? Relationships between people. So he divides the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maids, putting the maids and their children first. If anyone goes, the maids and their kids go first, right? Second, who's next? Leah, the less loved wife. Remember, they're sisters. Leah, he, Jacob got stuck with Leah, didn't want to marry her, but he, you know, she was veiled and it was dark, he didn't see. So he's married to her. But can you imagine what the kids of Leah thought? That their mother's next in line. Because that's important about the Judah-Joseph story later. And then Rachel and Joseph last. You wonder why the brothers were upset? Do you think it was only the dreams that this kid had? Please. Jacob himself goes on ahead, bows low to the ground seven times until he was near his brother. Now look at this. Look at verse 4. Esau runs to greet him, embraces him, falling on his neck, and he kissed him. Esau kissed Jacob. And then they wept. Looking about, he said, who are these? And he answered, the children with whom God has favored your servant. Then the maids came forward, next Leah, and next Rachel. And then he says, what do you mean by all the stuff I kept on meeting on the way to see you? Jacob had sent presents and, and money and flocks to gain my Lord's favor. Esau says, I have enough. Isn't that something? Look at the brothers. Look which brother is the one who's the major force for peace. The cast out brother, right? The one whose birthright was stolen, right? The one whose blessing was stolen. And he's the agent for reconciliation. My brother, I have enough. Let what you have remain yours. But Jacob says, no, no, no. He didn't trust him. Didn't trust Esau. Do me a favor, accept for me this gift. For to see your face is like seeing the face of God. Now here I'm going to give you a boing to a modern play. Where have you heard a verse like, to see your face is like seeing the face of God? Ever see Les Mis? You know what line I'm talking about? It comes from here. Is to love another is to see the face of God. Sometimes the Bible even provides good stuff, does it not? For music, special music. And what goes on? And he, he said, accept my presence, which I brought for you. God has favored me. I have lots of money. I have lots of everything. 
And when he urged them, he accepted. Maybe Esau said, okay, what the heck. Then Esau said, let us start on our journey and I'll proceed at your pace. Esau's going to accompany him. Of course, Jacob doesn't believe a word Esau saying. He's still with the old mindset of 40 years ago, or 30 years ago, or 20 years ago. But he said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail. Oy. And that the flocks and herds which are nursing are a care to me. If they are driven hard a single day, all the flocks will die. Go ahead of me while I travel slowly at the pace of the cattle before me and at the pace of the children till I come to my Lord and Savior. Then Esau said, let me assign to you some of the men who are with me. I'll send some men with you. Jacob said, no, no, no. And Esau started back on that day on his way to Sehir. Jacob journeyed on to Sukkot, arriving safely in the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. Some of those went with him because Jacob said, you're so kind to me. So Esau saw that his brother got to a safe place. Again! Two brothers, the cast out being the agent of reconciliation. The one who suffered being the agent to make peace. The one who lost the blessing was and suffered because of it humanly, was the one to help make things happen. All right, let's jump to Joseph and his brothers. You all know the story of Joseph and his brothers. But what's interesting is with Joseph and his brothers, we know Joseph's pain. But you've got to remember the pain of the brothers. Jacob favored Rachel's sons. He favored Joseph and he favored Benjamin. She died while giving birth to Benjamin. And he kept he went going around Jacob and saying, listen, my life ended when Rachel died. Can you imagine the kids hearing that? The kids of Leah's kids hearing? What do you mean? What was my mother chopped liver? You know? What about our mother? Jacob, by the way, says it to Pharaoh. I've had a miserable life. My wife died on me. You know how the story goes. They have to go and eat in Egypt. Why did they go to Egypt for food? Why? What? So Egypt doesn't have famines. Why did they go to Egypt? What does Egypt have that Israel does not have? It has an ongoing source of water which overflows four or five times a year, which makes it possible to have food. Israel is totally dependent. It has a minimal supply of fresh water, totally dependent on rain. And if it doesn't rain for a while, boom, always famine. That little country has had more than its share of drought. Egypt always has some food because the Nile overflows, and that's the way they were able to feed themselves. So, you know that Joseph goes down. Egypt not willingly his brothers sell him into slavery he goes down you know the whole stories with uh, you know how he started interpreting dreams and uh, eventually interpret a dream for Pharaoh dreams for Pharaoh the dreams didn't impress Pharaoh by the way what did impress Pharaoh do you know the story Joseph came up with an MBA plan for Egypt and that's when Pharaoh says you ever seen such a smart kid like this 
this kid knows what he's talking about. It wasn't the dream. Do you think Pharaoh didn't have dream interpreters? Come on. He was like living on the Upper West Side of New York City. Every second apartment is a therapist's home. <laughs> huh? I mean, you, those of you who have been there know that. All well, upper, upper West Side of Manhattan is, is called psycho psychologist's paradise. And that's where everybody is. You can get all your problems can be resolved. Pharaoh had it. It wasn't the dream. First of all, it was such a silly little dream. Anyways, what I mean by silly, fat, weak things, sin things eat fat things. You think you couldn't put that together yourself? <laughs> Something bad's coming and it's going to destroy good things. I mean, it's no, as they say in Hebrew, no great chokhmah. There's no great wisdom to what but then Joseph said. But here's the idea, Pharaoh. Pharaoh should start doing this. Sign someone to do this take over the lands of the nobility, take over even the lands of the priesthood, start doing all of that stuff, take over all the food, and Pharaoh's going to be okay, at which point Pharaoh says to him, we have somebody on board. And that was it. In any case, we know of Joseph's rise to power, right? Just tidbits. I'm just giving you tidbits. The brothers have to come for food. Joseph recognizes them. They don't recognize him. He had a good haircut, he had grown up, whatever it is, all right? Probably didn't have a beard, was clean shaven, which is not the style of people who would be in Canaan at that point. Joseph sets it up that the brothers are set up so that it appears that they're uh, spies. And he says, look, I'm keeping this brother here, that's Simeon. Now you go back, you say you have a brother? Bring that brother to me. Bring that brother. That's what the whole story is about. Bring that brother to me. You guys, I don't really, you know, but bring that brother. My, he doesn't say my brother, but it's my brother to me. They go back and Jacob says, no way, Jose. Not doing it. Not doing it. You guys know what happened to his brother. Talking about Joseph. I lost him. I lose the young one, I'm finished. Imagine, did he say it about any of them? Did he say it about Simeon, who was still in uh, servitude in prison in Egypt? No, it's just another kid. But Benjamin, Rachel's remaining son in his mind, he was willing to do anything. He was not willing. So Reuben steps up first. And it is going on with time, so let me do it quickly with you. So Reuben steps up first. Reuben says, look, we've got to go back. We have no food. We're going to die. And he said, I put my two sons in your guardianship. If anything happens to Benjamin... They have to pay the price. Now, the question is, is that an answer to the question? No. Reuben didn't say, I'm putting myself on the line. That would be an answer to the question. Reuben says, my kids. Another Abraham Isaac story, right? I'm putting my kids on the line. Jacob says, no way. And then Judah stands up. 
this is towards the very end of the book of Genesis. You know where I'm going with it, right? All right. Judah, son of Leah, son of the less loved mother, facing Joseph, cast out by his brothers, but the beloved son of the beloved mother, of the two brothers who has the greater significance in Jacob's eyes, Joseph, not Judah, but he doesn't know Joseph so long. Benjamin, for sure, is a higher level. Now, so come with me all the way to chapter, just in chapter 44. And I'm just going to do a little bit of it. Judah's eloquent presentation is one of the most beautiful parts of Scripture. If you've never read Judah's confrontation with Joseph, read it when you go home today. Do yourselves a favor. Read it. It's one of the most elegant and eloquent parts of traditional scripture. Judah first says to, to Jacob, he says, look, I put myself online. If anything happens to Benjamin, I, he will go free and I will stay imprisoned in Egypt. my life in place of his. Now listen to what he says and listen to when Joseph responds and how Joseph will respond. Then Judah went up to him and said, we're at chapter 44, verse 18. Please, my Lord, let your servant appeal to my Lord and do not be impatient with your servant, you who are the equal of Pharaoh. But he wasn't the equal of Pharaoh. But that's another story for another time. My Lord asked his servants, Have you a father or another brother? We told you, we have an old father and there is a child of his old age, the youngest. His full brother is dead. So that he alone is left of his mother and his father dotes on him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father. If he were to leave him, his father would die. So it's not only, am I my brother's keeper? It is, am I my father's keeper as well? Look what you to say. But you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, I will not see your faces again. Let's hear it. Fine. Okay. All right. Where did you see the face thing? Come, I know it's late, but it's not that late. Where did you hear the face thing? Jacob and Esau. To see your face. You hear the words? You've got to see the rep hear the repetition of words. It's the giveaway to connection. There's your point. To see your face again. And if you're the listener... You're saying, I heard that before. Face. That's what Jacob, okay, who's still part of the story, said to Esau. To see your face is like to see the face of God. What did Judah say about Joseph? Second only to Pharaoh. To see your face is like seeing the face of 
Pharaoh is a semi-deity in Egypt. Understand that. What he's saying there, it's the same verse, twisted around a little bit, the same verse. Boing! It's there, it's there. Listen to it carefully. Unless your younger brother comes down with me, you, do, you will never see my face again. When we come back to your servant, my father, we reported out my Lord's words to him. Later, our father said, go get more food. And we said, we cannot go down only if our youngest brother, younger brother is with us. Notice, what are they calling Benjamin? What are they calling Benjamin? Second word, brother. Don't am I my brother's keeper? Because up to now it's only the brother of Joseph that they're talking about. Up to now it's only this kid of the more loved mother whose father dotes on him. But what's Judah saying him here? He's saying we cannot go down only if our Younger brothers with us. Then we can go down, for we may not show our faces to the man. Same repeat. Now Jacob's got to hear that. Jacob's got to say something's going on here. Because he used the word to see your face. Your servant, my father, said to us, now listen to this. This is Judah. I want you to put yourself in Judah's place. Understand? I want you to put yourself in Judah's place. Judah is now going to tell Joseph the most extraordinary thing that his father said to him. Your servant, my father, said to us, as you know, my wife bore me two sons. Hello? <laughs> what about Leah? Judah's mother. She's not his wife. Now, if you're Judah, what, what are you hearing when your father says that? The question is, hearing that, can you still do this? Not easy. But one has gone for me, and I said, alas, he was torn by a beast, and I have not seen him since. If you take this one from me, too, and he meets with disaster, you will send my white head down to Sheol in sorrow. I'm going to die. Not over you, not over Simeon, but I'll die over Benjamin. Now, if I come back to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us since his own life is so bound up with his, when he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And I and my brothers, your servants, will send the white head of your servant, our father, down to shoulder grief. Now, your servant has pledged himself. Listen to Judah's statement about what he's doing. I have pledged myself for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, I shall stand guilty before my father forever. Therefore, please let me remain as a slave to my Lord instead of the boy, and let the boy go back with his brothers. With his brothers. Born. For how can I go back to my father unless the boy is with me? 
let me not be witness to the woe would overtake my father. And at that point, Joseph can't take it anymore, and he breaks out crying and reveals himself to the brothers. What happens? You know the story. They come down to Egypt. Who takes care of them? Joseph. Joseph cares for them. Judah cares for Benjamin. Out of what is a very, very pulled apart family, there's a sense. And to the question Cain asked at the beginning of Genesis, am I my brother's keeper? The answer is, you sure are. Yes, you are. And the rest of scripture defines what that means, both to Jews and to Christians.